0: There were so many immigrants from Poland that the name for a Jewish person in Cuba, to this day, is Polaco. The immigrants who stayed were these Sephardic immigrants from Turkey, and then many, many from Poland. To this day, even if you are Sephardic in Cuba, they'll call you a Polaco. That just became the term uh, for Jews. Cuba was really their primary homeland and they really developed an identity of being Cuban and Jewish. These immigrants kind of arriving and colliding with Cuban culture. It was this land of sunshine and the ocean and the palm trees. And it was just a place filled with hope. And I think they really thought they were staying forever. I think everything for me connects around my Jewish Cuban identity in one way or another.
1: Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find Joy in Conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. A few months ago, I had the good fortune of having a conversation with Rachel Laurier. Rachel lives in Brooklyn, but her family's Ghanaian. She established a lifestyle brand, Kelo that revolves around plantains in all their culinary versatility and cultural significance. Rachel shared with me her plantain love story. She talked about her mother, about aromas in the kitchen, and about flavors on her palate. We also discussed diaspora and the things that bind people together, even when they're dispersed across the globe. Ghana, Brooklyn, the Caribbean. The plantain has a home in each of these places. It's a beloved staple on tables across the world. This conversation actually reminded me of my mother, who's an Ashkenazi Jew from New York. My mom also hails from Brooklyn, and she comes to life when talking about her grandmother who she calls Nanny, and the food they prepared in the kitchen during my mom's New York childhood. Nanny transported my mom across the globe with all of her recipes and the intimate act of preparing and sharing a meal with her and the family. Rachel and my mom, Lisa, are seemingly worlds apart. Ghanaian and Ashkenazi food and culture, well, they don't have much in common on the surface. Yet when I was speaking with Rachel, I heard echoes of what it is that my mom has had to say throughout my entire life. Both Rachel and my mom speak with love for food and family. They both feel connected to global communities. Communities that are dispersed, yet bound together, even though their histories of displacement could have fragmented their societies. So a few months later, when I spoke with Ruth Behar, I was again struck by the resonances of memory, family, food, and diaspora. So much of what Ruth shared was new. It awakened me to a community and a history that I had never encountered. Yet her words stuck with me because they were familiar in so many ways. When I set out to learn from Ruth the history of the Jews of Cuba, I wasn't quite aware of how primed I was to connect in such intimate levels to what it is that she had to share. Ruth spoke of keepers of memory and diaspora. In her case, a story of a double diaspora. Keepers of memory. There are so many ways memories live on and form our outlooks and our identities. For some, Our memories take the shape of the food that we serve. A well spiced dish with just the right texture. Well, that is a story told and shared with loved ones. And I know this kind of memory keeping quite well. Ruth shared with me lots of memories. Some of them were in the abstract and about history told in broad strokes, while other memories were of her family and the places that they came from and where it is that ultimately they'd go. Ruth has no short supply of stories. They're vividly told and they're transporting. Her memories live on in the travelogues, poems, and children's literature that she writes. Ruth invites the world to listen to her stories, and she finds medium after medium to bring her stories of Cuba, of Polacos, of Ashkenazim and Sephardim, And the blurry lines between them to life. Speaking with Ruth, I thought a lot about home. What does it mean to be home? What does it mean to even have a home? Who, not where, but who is our home? What artifacts and vestiges of home do we carry with us, even when we're far away from that place, that place that we call home? And when we travel with these memories, when we travel heavy, Are we ever really far from home? Yet at the same time, can we ever truly be home? These three women, Rachel, Lisa, and Ruth, they each shared with me their memories of Ghana, New York, and Cuba, of the homes that they built and the ones that they left, the homes that are remembered and those that are carried with them. Today, we'll hear Ruth's stories and we'll learn about how Cuba became home to Jews. So let's turn to Ruth. Let's listen. Y'all, let's learn together.
0: I am Ruth Behar, and I'm a cultural anthropologist and a writer and poet as well. And I write for young people, too. I was born in Cuba and grew up in New York. And I now live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I teach at the University of Michigan. Spent a lot of years going back and forth to Cuba and speaking to Jewish people who still live on the island, all over the island, traveled the island back and forth several times, talking to people, photographing people, getting to know their life stories. So I'm kind of interested in in that whole experience of the Jews who got to Cuba first in the early 20th century and then the Jews who still remain there today under a communist system.
1: Ruth's interest in Cuba is very much bound up in her family's stories and her own lived experience. Let's turn to Ruth's family and the personal connections that she has to the island of Cuba. We'll start by learning about her grandmother from Poland and this first story of leaving and finding home. What is it that your grandmother shared with you about her life in Poland and the way she felt about relocating to cuba
0: so what i knew about poland and my grandmother's life there was all focused around a book <laughs> a memorial book for the town that she was from which is called govorovo i would hear her talk about this town and then she would pull out the memorial book that her father my great grandfather was involved in writing for it and editing it and putting it together and she was just so attached to this book which had black and white photos of people who had lived in the town many of them who had perished in the holocaust or before the holocaust just at the hands of the nazis and so she would look at that book and and it was just so meaningful and only part of the book is in english most of it is in yiddish but she would tell me about it and she would tell me that she was really ready to leave Poland. The conditions had gotten very bad. She had a lot of experiences of racial hatred, and then there was a lot of poverty in, in this period between World War I and World War II. And her father, my great-grandfather, had had a little store in Govorovo that apparently he lost after World War I. So the family was really struggling. People in Poland at that time found out that if they could get to Cuba. They could then eventually get to the United States because the United States closed the door to Eastern European and Southern European immigrants in 1921. And then in 1924, passed an Immigration and Nationality Act that essentially made it impossible for most of these immigrants to make it to the United States. But they heard that they could get to Cuba. They actually heard through the Yiddish press that they could get to Cuba. And if they could get to Cuba, they could then eventually get an exit visa and go to the United States as Cubans essentially, rather than as Polish immigrants. So they all knew that or had that information. And my great-grandfather was the one to go to Cuba first. And he got there. He was a very religious man, very, very orthodox Jewish man, but he was a very, very bad salesman. And so he got to Cuba and he was working as a peddler and trying to make enough money to bring the family over to bring you know, his wife, my great-grandmother, and all the children. And, and he was just not having very good luck, but after a couple of years, he made enough money to bring one of the children. And so he wrote a letter to the family in Poland and said that he wanted to bring one of the sons. But my grandmother was very insistent and said, well, I am the oldest. I should be the one to go first to Cuba and to help you. And she pleaded with him, and she convinced him. And so she went to Cuba first and helped to bring the rest of the family to Cuba. So that was the story I always heard. And that was what inspired Letters from Cuba.
1: So Cuba was seen as a springboard. But did it remain as such in the minds of people like Ruth's grandmother?
0: What happened was many thousands of Jewish immigrants used Cuba as a kind of trampoline to hop over to the U.S. But what happened to immigrants like my grandmother, my grandmother Esther, was that she actually came to love Cuba. And once she was there, she didn't see any need to go north. So she was one of maybe 15,000 or so Jewish immigrants who just came to think of Cuba as their America, and they didn't need to go to a different America. Like Cuba was great. So there were many people in the Jewish community that just came to love Cuba, love the life there, the climate, culture, felt at home in Cuba, didn't feel discriminated against as they had in Europe, and they stayed. Those were the people that created the real community of Cuba. They were the ones who, who chose to stay and make Cuba their home.
1: I mentioned earlier that Ruth's stories have taken many shapes. Recently, she's turned to children's literature as a way to share memories and bring new generations into the conversation around Jews leaving Poland and arriving in Cuba.
0: My writing for young people, actually, my new book, Letters from Cuba, is very, very focused on the Jewish experience in Cuba. It was inspired by my maternal grandmother's story of fleeing to Cuba on the eve of World War II and starting a new life there. And I was always so curious to imagine what it was like for those immigrants to find their way to Cuba, to move from a place like Poland to a tropical island like Cuba. It was always for me just so kind of fantastical to. To imagine what that was like for those immigrants. So, Letters from Cuba is really a kind of, you know, real work of the imagination of trying to put myself in the place of my grandmother when she was young and just
1: getting to know Cuba. Ruth's identity is complex. So, too, is that of Cuba's Jewish community. So, let's take a look at the other side of her family, her father's family, and where they come from and how they made their way to Cuba. I'm curious to know what was the context around your Safari family's departure from Turkey. What was the impetus for their arrival in Cuba?
0: There we have a very different set of factors and a very different history. There you have the end of the Ottoman Empire. Turkey basically becomes a nation in 1923, but before that They were involved in lots of wars they were involved in world war one and so men were very concerned jewish men were very concerned about being conscripted into the army and possibly never coming back at all like just disappearing you know into the army or or dying at war and so for a lot of the men those who could were leaving for cuba in the late teens and early 20s The first synagogue established in Cuba was a Sephardic synagogue, Shebenahim, and it was established by many of these immigrants. So there were many men that immigrated on their own in this period to Cuba. My abuela, the story that I always heard was that she was basically sent to Cuba by her family, that she was the oldest of the children, and they needed to marry her, and that there was somebody who wanted to marry her in Cuba.
1: Now that we've learned a little bit about Ruth's family and the memories that have inspired some of her writing, let's pan out and think a little bit more about the Jewish population of Cuba more broadly. So, how long have Jews actually lived in Cuba? Was the 20th century the birth of the Cuban Jewish population? Or was there already a community that was established and that was there to greet and receive? Polish, Turkish, and other Jews who were making their way to the island in the 20th century.
0: The first Jews to live in Cuba were hidden Jews, or conversos, as we call them. So Jews that converted in the 15th century in Spain, and the Jews are expelled from Spain in 1492. And then a couple of months later, Columbus sails off and lands in Cuba. And one of the people that accompanied him on that journey was a man who was known to be a crypto Jew or a converso, Luis de Torres, who is known, spoke various languages, um, Spanish and Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic. And the story goes that Columbus took him along on the trip because he could speak all these languages and might be able to be helpful in translating with Whatever natives they found in whatever place they ended up in. So that is often said that, you know, that there were conversos. He's the most well known, but that there were probably other conversos who were not practicing Jews. They had converted to Catholicism, but that they were involved in that early settlement and colonization of Cuba. But of course, they didn't leave synagogues or other, you know, other markers of Jewish identity.
1: I'm wondering, those cultural institutions, were they an attempt to replicate or recreate what it is that was known in Poland or Turkey? Or can we see distinctive adaptations and Cuban characteristics that are weaving their way into what it is that's being founded and maintained in this brief window?
0: I know that the Sephardic Jews had an association and they would get together often. There were many who came from this one town called Silivri. And so they had an association and, you know, they got together. The men particularly got together and played dominoes, which is actually a Cuban Thing. So they became Cubanized in that way, but they would have their Turkish coffee and play dominoes in the afternoons. And I understand that there was a radio station as well where they played Sephardic music with the oud and songs in Ladino, that that existed. So certainly there was some you know, effort to maintain the traditions from the old world. And I think similarly for the Yiddish speakers, I understand that there was Yiddish theater and they're definitely you know, maintaining Yiddish was extremely important to this community. And where you see some adaptation and change is actually in that Yiddish community. By the 40s and 50s, they were creating publications and events where they were really mixing these cultures. In particular, they had a whole event in the mid 50s, honoring Jose Marti. Jose Marti is the great independence leader of Cuba, and he was also an extraordinary poet and he's Cuba's national poet. And so they had a whole event in the mid 50s, honoring Jose Marti and his work and his poetry and his whole quest for the independence of Cuba and the autonomy of Cuba. So they were taking in all of those ideas that had to do with a free Cuba, Cuba not dominated by the United States. They'd taken all that in. But the interesting thing is when they published a book about this event that they had, it was published in Spanish and Yiddish. So they, you know, they used the Yiddish to talk about Cuban events and, and Cuban heroes. And there were a few, not too many, but there were a few writers, you know, by the 40s and 50s that were also writing poems in Yiddish, but about other Cuban heroes like Atue. Atue was a Native American who who had a rough encounter with the Spanish colonizers when they arrived in eastern Cuba. And the story goes that he refused to be converted to Christianity and he died at the stake for his beliefs. He was put to fire. And so Atue, H-A-T-U-E-Y, is considered a great hero. In Cuba, and so there's a, a Yiddish Cuban writer who wrote a whole poem about Atue. The, the Jews of Cuba started meshing together. The women, I guess I should say, started meshing together. The cuisines, you know, that they had brought from Europe. You know, the Ashkenazi Jews, you know, who brought matzah ball soup and gefilte fish, and you know, all of those dishes that we associate with that part of the world, and the Sephardic Jews who brought Borrecas and stuffed grape leaves and things like that, but they also came to love black beans and rice and fried plantains and you know all of the Cuban dishes, which they worked very hard. And I know this from my mother, who's a great cook. The women worked very hard to kosherize, you know, all of those dishes because a lot of them, or almost all of them, had some pork in them. So you know, making the black beans so that they they were vegetarian. Making tamales, but not stuffing them with pork, stuffing them with chicken, you know, things like that. So they made these adaptations. One of the things I always thought was amazing about the community is they really came to love Cuban music and Cuban dance. And I was always impressed by these incredible dancers, you know, in the community, because, you know, especially the next generation, maybe not so much the grandparent generation, but once my parents, you know, were both born in Cuba and grew up in Cuba and, you know, married and would have stayed in Cuba forever. My parents both are, you know, extraordinary dancers. And, you know, when I was growing up in New York, they always had cha-cha-cha music playing and Benny Morey loved songs, boleros playing, and they would they would go out and dance. They loved to dance. And, and And at every bar mitzvah that I grew up going to in New York, you know, all of those parties always had Cuban music and Celia Cruz and the Conga line, that was all a given. (laughs) So, definitely, they came to blend the cultures in a very strong way. And especially in becoming Spanish speakers, you know, I marvel to this day that my parents, who've been in the US for over 50 years, they're so much more comfortable in Spanish than in English, you know. And it's not that they don't speak English, but Spanish is the language they spoke as young people, and it's the way they relate to the world. And, you know, they watch the news in Spanish, and my mother watches telenovelas from Mexico, and they're so comfortable in the Spanish-speaking world. And I think that's something that the community, particularly of that generation, really became part of who they are.
1: I'm struck by everything Ruth has to say about cultural blending and hybridity. It's such a lovely reminder that identity is never one-dimensional. People are never one thing. Already, Ruth has shown us the ways in which one family came to encapsulate so many different things. Polish, Turkish, and Cuban cultural influences. Ladino and Yiddish and Spanish seem to flow seamlessly in the background of everything that Ruth is telling us. In all of these stories, in the history of the Jews of Cuba, we're talking about integration and the way roots grow and fasten communities to a particular place. And with those roots and the cultural influences that offer nourishment for individuals and for communities, we're seeing how people leave home but also manage to make new homes wherever they go. But if we're familiar with the history of Cuba in the 20th century, we know that part of this story is of departure, of people who left home after the revolution in Cuba, the one that brought Fidel Castro to power. We can't just talk about food and music and dancing and all of this joy without also looking at the history of the revolution and what this meant for Cuba. You said that your parents would have likely stayed in Cuba forever had it not been for the revolution. So would you mind sharing a little bit about what the revolution meant for the communities of Jews living in Cuba at the time?
0: Most of the Jews of Cuba by the late 50s, when the revolution was beginning, were really supportive of Fidel Castro and the kinds of changes that he was advocating for. He wrote a text called History Will Absolve Me, which was actually a defense that he gave, a verbal defense that then got written down that he gave because he was jailed by Batista, who was Cuba's dictator in the mid to late 50s. And so Fidel Castro was, you know, calling for all kinds of reforms, agrarian reforms and urban reforms and better salaries for middle class people, better housing, better education. All of these reforms seemed very positive to almost all Cubans. Probably 90% of the Cuban people supported what he was advocating for, theoretically what he was advocating for. And so did the Jews of Cuba, right? So did the Jews of Cuba. They had become so Cuban in that sense that they, they really thought these were good reforms and that Cuba was also being treated like a colony of the United States. There was a lot of anti-colonial Sentiment as well, that I would say the Jews of Cuba also agreed with a lot of those sentiments at that time. And the other thing to know here, which is interesting, is that the first Communist Party of Cuba was formed in 1925, and there were several Ashkenazi Polish Jews involved in the foundation of the first Communist Party. So that was also kind of an interesting part of this story. But people didn't know, they didn't know in the late 50s that Fidel Castro's revolution would be a communist revolution. That wasn't clear at the very beginning. I don't know if it was clear to Fidel Castro. There's so much debate about that, whether all along he was planning to turn the country towards communism, or that was a decision that he made after the United States became antagonistic towards the revolution. So we don't know for sure. There's many different debates and theories About that. But what we do know is the Jews of Cuba largely supported the revolution. And when he came to power, they stayed in Cuba. In 1959, the Jews of Cuba were still there and they had by then built several synagogues. There were five synagogues in Havana and several synagogues throughout the island. And they were staying put at the very beginning and being part of this revolution that had just begun. But what happened? By 1960, things started to change. There was a move towards starting to nationalize some large properties. And the Jews were not that affected yet because the large properties were plantations, you know, and oil companies and banks and things like that, that, you know, this Jewish community was not involved in. Most of them were were merchants and small shopkeepers and things like that. So they were mostly staying put. And it's really in 1961 that all of this comes to a head with the Bay of Pigs invasion in April of 1961, when the CIA basically trained a group of Cuban exiles, because there were people that were very unhappy with Castro already by 60, 61. And these exiles tried to go back to Cuba and lead an uprising against Fidel Castro, but they failed. And then it was at that point, I think right around April 17th, 1961, that Fidel Castro declared that the revolution was going to be communist. And already by then, the U.S. was acting antagonistically towards Cuba, and they were very concerned with those expropriations of large properties, which had largely been in American hands, the plantations and sugar plantations and banks and all, all those things I mentioned earlier were were american companies and american properties and those things were being expropriated uh, nationalized by the new revolutionary government and then in 61 it became clear that fidel castro was going to align himself with the soviets so all of that seemed very concerning to the jewish community in part because of the fear that they would not be able to continue to practice judaism in cuba and even those people who were not that religious were concerned about the nationalizations. And then what happened in 61 too, is that by that time, they started nationalizing small properties. So Jewish people who had a small store, a small property, a rental business maybe, things like that, all of those private enterprises were gradually being nationalized by the new government. And there I can add my maternal grandparents, my grandmother Esther and my grandfather Maximo. They had a small store on Calle Aguacate on Avocado Street in Old Havana, and it was a lace store. And that small store was among the things, the properties that were nationalized. So they lost the store that they had worked so hard to build, and they lived above the store in Old Havana and had this lace store underneath. And that was taken from them and and similarly for, you know, many, many other Jewish people in the community who had little stores, little businesses. Those things were nationalized. And even my other grandfather, my Sephardic grandfather, who never did that well, never prospered that well in Cuba. He was a peddler up until they left Cuba. But Cuba also, the Cuban government also decided that it was not okay anymore to be a street peddler either. And so Basically, the kind of economic freedom that the Jewish community had been used to was quickly taken away. For some people in the community, my Russian grandfather and others like him felt like this was, you know, like the Russian Revolution, you know, (laughs) all over again. Those who had that kind of historical memory felt like they were seeing a repeat of something that they had known in Europe. And so they fled to the US. So of that 15,000, about 90% of the Jewish community leaves in the early 60s and many go to New York and then many others go to Miami.
1: Ruth's story of leaving Cuba is full of historical echoes. Her stories of Jews leaving Cuba may be undertold, yet it exists within a more expansive narrative of Jewish history. How was that departure from Cuba seen in terms of Jewish diasporic identity?
0: I think it was very wrenching for this community. I think it was this double diaspora or this, this twin diaspora in a way. They had fled Europe because of discrimination. And so they they had fled to maintain their Jewish identity. And in a way, I think some of them felt when they were leaving Cuba that they were fleeing to maintain Their Jewish identity as well, but not because they had suffered any persecution or anti-Semitism in Cuba, because they had not. And I think that the loss of Cuba for many of them was much more cruel and harsh than the loss of their homes in Europe. I think Cuba had been filled with so much hope. And you know, they were building synagogues, they built A major synagogue in the mid-50s in Havana, the patronato, as we call it, or the Beth Shalom Synagogue, was a synagogue, a library, a banquet hall, a performance center. They were setting down roots in the mid-50s, and they had no idea that five or six years later, they would all be packing the one suitcase they were allowed and leaving everything behind, all of their possessions and furniture and et cetera and leaving the Torahs behind. It was very, very painful. And there was the sense of, we really don't want to leave Cuba. We've never been harmed in Cuba as Jews. And, you know, we don't want to leave this country, this island, but we have no choice. We can't live in a communist country. I think many of them thought that way. I know my parents did. They'd gotten a taste of it between 59, 60, and 61. And they didn't like it <laughs> and they, they didn't want to live in that kind of system. And so, in that sense, they truly viewed themselves as political exiles. You know, in that sense, they weren't that different from the rest of the community of Cubans that left in this era. They were leaving as exiles. For them, it had echoes of leaving Spain in 1492 because the Jews of Spain, the, the Sephardim, had also adored Spain. They had really thought of Spain as their home, their forever home. And of course, in Spain, they had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. In Cuba, much, much less time, only decades. But nevertheless, I feel that for the Sephardic Jews, there was an echo of leaving a home, Spanish-speaking home, that they had really loved and that they had not wanted to leave, that they would have stayed in. Forever, but the political situation made it unbearable for them to stay.
1: 1492 looms so large in Jewish collective memory. It's central to the Sephardim and the pain that generations carried with them across Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. With every generation born in Salonika or living in Istanbul that spoke Ladino. Spain remained with Jews. So in this underappreciated story of a diaspora from Cuba, what remained with these Jews? How was Cuba brought with them to Miami and New York and even places like Ann Arbor? In a U.S. context, do these Jews see themselves as Sephardic and Ashkenazi? Or is there still a sense of Cubanness that remains in spite of their departure from the island.
0: The Jews who are Ashkenazi and Cuban obviously identify with, you know, Ashkenazi traditions and, you know, liturgical traditions and so on. I think there's definitely that connection. And the same for the Sephardic Jews. They identify with other Sephardic Jews who might be from, you know, Morocco or other parts of the world that they could identify as Sephardim. But at the same time, the Cuban identity is very important. So there was definitely Cubanness that they were trying to hold on to and memories of Cuba that they were trying to hold on to. And again, the Spanish language was an important part of it. And keeping the community together, I think there was kind of a dream of keeping the community together. Possibly if they ever went back to Cuba, the community would still be intact.
1: What has been a a consequence of those efforts for a generation that perhaps was not born in Cuba, but is of parents and grandparents who know Cuba firsthand and more intimately? Have those efforts panned out in a way that there has been continuity?
0: What did prove to be a success was, I think, holding on to the culture. I feel like there's still some understanding, some awareness that their identity is a little bit different, that Spanish is spoken in their family, that the cuisine is a little bit different. And particularly in a place like Miami, where you have a very large Jewish Latino community that isn't just Cuban, but is also Argentine. A Mexican. There are a lot of people of just, you know, Jewish Latinx background. So the idea that you can have this Spanish speaking identity and be Jewish, that's something that I feel is very normal in that part of the country. Memories, photographs, stories, as the stories get passed on to that next generation, they hold on to them in some way, at least. It's not maybe as strong a connection as perhaps I feel.
1: Ruth has already shared with us a little bit about her grandmother, her youth, and her experience leaving Poland and arriving in Cuba that inspired Ruth to write for younger audiences the book Letters from Cuba. Now let's turn to the poetry that Ruth writes and listen to the ways that Sephardic, Ashkenazi, and Cuban parts of her identity swirl in the theme she plays with in her creative work.
0: Some of my poems actually have to do with Jewish experience in Cuba or they have to do with my identity as Ashkenazi on my mother's side and Sephardic on my father's side and actually have several poems about my Sephardic identity, which I guess is the more fraught. The poetry I write both in English and Spanish. Well, here's one that I view as very Jewish exile kind of poem, it's called Prayer. Esto me pasa con frecuencia, con frecuencia. Too often, I am on my way home, driving down familiar streets, only a few blocks to go, and out of nowhere, a merciless hand comes and wrings my heart dry. I tremble. Fog clouds my eyes. I am no longer sure if I am awake or dreaming. If I die, who will find me? All I can do is pray. Don't take me yet. Let me return home. I'm almost there. Please. I don't know why this happens. What I know is that so far my prayers have been answered. Hardly breathing, I reach my house. And when I open the door, I hear many keys clanging, the keys my ancestors stubbornly took with them to their exile. It's it's very sad. Um, It's called Lament for Abuela in memory. Leaving Silivria, you took your oud, songs fell from your lips like air they told you there was a man one of ours from the village waiting to marry you in Cuba there was a boat the rest you forgot never looked back to the kitchen with the slanting floors the door painted mint green you became Rebeca to Isaac bore him four children son, daughter, son, daughter Learn to devour his rage as if you hungered for it. Looking out to sea from the balcony of Calle Oficios, you tried to remember your mother's hands and why you couldn't say you loved her when you waved goodbye. Then you grew fat, making baklava in Brooklyn. So fat, it was a shame, your face still so pretty. How the honey poured from the jar, slow and sweet, like the years, thick and cruel, like the years. Then in your sleep you were yelling, "Isaac, ice, ice, my heart is in flames, please, Isaac, ice, ice. That day you died, like a saint, they said, sitting up in your bed, dark hair spread on your pillow, soft mouth parted as if to speak.
1: For someone who perhaps had never studied the history of Jews in Cuba, but came across those two poems, what might those two poems reveal? What emotions that permeate this history, what texture that define this history are in those words
0: Now that we talk about epigenetics, you know, whether there is some sort of lingering, you know, lingering search for home in in me that, you know, that comes from, you know, from this heritage of of a double diaspora, grandparents that left Europe and then left Cuba. And before that, there were so many other departures and search for home, going back to the Sephardic heritage and, you know, the departure from Spain that was so tragic for the Sephardic Jews. They often say that that was kind of the Sephardic equivalent of the Holocaust, like the loss of Spain was just like the loss of Poland and the loss of, of life in Eastern Europe. That was where Jewish life had been centered for such a long time. So I think with prayer, it's it's this prayer to maybe to a, a divine spirit, but more than that, it's kind of like a prayer to the ancestors and Help me find my home. You know, you, you took your keys with you, whether the literal keys or the figurative keys, you know, meaning the, the memories back to these places. And so I'm still holding on to those keys and hoping that all the memories that I keep will lead me home again. I think people of all identities, of diverse identities and cultures, are keepers of memory. So this is like one more piece of the mosaic. I mean, I think all of humanity is part of a large mosaic, a very diverse mosaic. You know, that's one of the things that I love about humanity is that we have all of this diversity in language and culture and geography and how we live our lives, what we find meaningful. It's just maybe interesting to think about how cultures can converge and become hybrid. And uh, none of us are really representatives of a pure culture. So I think understanding hybridity and understanding intersections and mixtures and anybody who's interested in cultural adaptation and how do we blend different identities into one and feel that that's totally acceptable and comfortable and that it enlarges and enriches our lives to be part of more than one culture. I feel so enriched by the fact that I have a Jewish identity and that my Jewish identity is complex, that it's Ashkenazi and Sephardic. So I was always aware that being Jewish wasn't one thing because, you know, I could see how differently Judaism was practiced on the Sephardic side and on the Ashkenazi side and how different the traditions were. So that gave me a sense of, oh, wow, Judaism is complex and and nuanced. And then you mix that with a Cuban identity and then it's like, oh, well, you can have that Jewish identity and then you can also have a Cuban identity, and these things can blend together and form something, something new. So I think that can be just a very interesting message or lesson to, to take away from this story.
1: As we've learned through this conversation with Ruth, the story of the Jews of Cuba is not just one thing. It's not only that of persecuted Jews seeking refuge. It's so much more. What I take away from this is that home is hybrid. And family? Well, family's fusion. When I was younger and I heard my mom talk about her nanny's recipes, and more recently when I spoke to Rachel about plantains in Ghana, part of me thought, okay, so they're preserving. They inherited and they're holding on to something. Sure, there's preservation and inheritance in these stories. But there's also room to innovate as we carry memories and blend disparate influences into something new. With Ruth, with Cuba, there's so much that's being held onto. There's also a lot that's new and alive. Keepers of memory are not clinging to the past. So much of what they're doing is actually looking to the future. So let's keep telling and listening to stories and keeping those memories alive together. Let's look to the future. A special thanks to Ruth Behar. It was a treat talking to you. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Ruth's book, Letters from Cuba, is published by Nancy Paulson Books. To learn more about Ruth's other writings, visit her website at ruthbehar.com. Thanks, as always, to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering joy and conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit NicoRiversRecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit WarbirdCreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazar. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available for creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and for your curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and by visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Bishu we'll see you next time.